1: Today, a special episode of our show. Saturday was Veterans Day. I had a chance to give a talk to an outstanding group of people a few days ago, a little about my military career, Veterans Day, Medal of Honor recipient Captain Larry Taylor, and much more. This is... Tomorrowtown, Tennessee. This is the podcast that tells the stories of the people who call the Tennessee Valley home. We discuss the issues we're all facing, and we talk to those working on solutions. I'm Josh Rowe. I'll be your host for this journey.
0: Without further ado, let's give uh, Josh Rowe a round of applause. Josh? Oh,
1: thank you very much.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, So good to be here today. And I mean that. I got a few, a few items over there. We're going to show you here in a second. Um, in spring of 1992, I was on a, a bus, <laughs> at night, heading to Paris Island, South Carolina. And man, uh, I was 18 years old. I had lived it my with my mom and stepdad for most of my life, and then lived with my grandmother for uh, one semester of college, community college, and I was ready for something else, just ready for a change. And so a challenge really, if, if I was if to be honest. And, and so I'm on this bus and we get there. And I'm sure you've heard the stories of, of this. The bus pulls up and this drill instructor gets on there and he's, get off my bus now and it's chaos and everybody's running around. I got these yellow footprints uh, there on the on the road and you line up in the yellow footprints as a platoon would line up and you're standing there and they're just stressing you out as you're there. You're getting yelled at from all directions and it's, it's chaotic. And so it's late at night when you arrive, right? I was, I grew up in West Tennessee. And so sometime early in that day, I got on a, a Greyhound bus. They gave me a ticket to a Greyhound bus, and drove me to Memphis, got on an airplane from Memphis ended up in Charleston, and then I met a bunch of people there I'd never seen before, and then you get on these buses to take you to, to Paris Island from there, and so it's been a long day of travel as it is, and uh, and you get off that, that, that bus, and, it's, and now it's wild, and the first few hours is through the night, and you're doing a lot of paperwork and processing and all this, and then you go to The doctor where you get a physical and then they they line you up along these long walls and and you got this big uh, plastic tub and they're just literally throwing uniforms and boots and toothbrushes and all this stuff at you essentially bouncing off of you into your tub and it's you're just like the whole time and that's all night long you do that takes hours to go through and so at some point the sun comes up and it's tomorrow now and you haven't slept and it's been a stressful night. And at some point during that day, you go into a barbershop that is not like any barbershop you've ever seen. There's about five chairs here, and you go in one side of the of the thing and you go into the empty chair. And I never knew before then that a haircut could be painful, that it would be hurt. Then <laughs> I got a haircut that hurt, and I got up and had no hair on my head as close as the clippers would, would, would get you. And then you go out the door on the other end. And so you, I walk out the door, and you're in a hallway, and I turned to my left, and there's a drill instructor there. There's different processes you go through when you go to boot camp. There's receiving, which is what this was. and you are there for a few days. Then you go to a thing called forming, which they just kind of teach you where things are. And then the training starts. So you've been there two weeks before you even really start training. And training's 13 weeks, and so this is the first day. So I walk out in that hallway, and I turn to my left, And this man, large man, punches me in the face with a gas mask and yells, medium. And so that's the moment that I started to think, I've made a mistake here. (laughs) I may not want to do this. Um, But the thing is, and that didn't go away right away, right? You are kind of like, man, this is, I signed up for this. This is is what I wanted, I guess. And so here we are. And so you go through the, the whole day. And finally, at the end of that day, you got all your stuff they've given you and you've been through this whole thing and you've been yelled at the whole time. And and you finally get a few minutes to to square your gear away and put your bed together and take a shower or whatever. And I'm looking around this room and I'm 18 and these guys look like grown men to me. I'm like, where am I? What is going on here? And what I'm thinking is, as we're talking a little bit, and you're kind of low, you don't really, you're not really talking too loud, but you're talking to people. And I'm thinking in my head, why is nobody talking about getting punched in the face with that gas mask? Because that was the thing that I remember the, all, the whole day. It was like, that was, why do you do that? Um, and nobody mentioned it. It was like, that was just okay. Like that's just, just, what, just part of it. And what I take away from that, as you're going through your training is, that was really hard. But there's a tomorrow that's also gonna be hard. And there's another day that's gonna be hard. And that never really stops the whole time you're going through this stuff. And the hard stuff you went through that first day, you kind of forget about it as you go through because what you're doing right now is really hard as well. And that's when I really started to, to, to build this thing that wherever I am today, right? In high school and through school, home life is kind of chaotic for me. And so my grades weren't great, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know where I was going. And a lot of my friends went off to four-year colleges and all these other things, and and my life wasn't like their life. And I'm starting to to try to figure out, okay, how do I I navigate through this stuff? And, And what I learned in the Marine Corps, specifically, was how to hold yourself accountable, right? If you want this done, if you want to achieve something, it's on you. Now, you need these people around you, but, but you've got to play your part. You've got to be part of this team. You've got to do the things you're expected to do. And, and so I start to figure some of those things out, right? How to be where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there. Um, and and just, just, you know, um, hold yourself to a certain standard. And when I think back about my Marine Corps time, it was eight years, assigned to six and twos, so what they called it, right? Six years active to inactive in the reserve. So I did about 10 months of training, then I went back to my life in Tennessee and went to reserve duty every couple of, once a month, two weeks out of the year for the most part. And um, it was 91 to 99, right? I was in high school during Desert Storm and seeing what happened to those guys, and I talked to a gentleman right here who was there, See what happened to those men and women who who were part of that and how they came home. And and our society treated them in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime veterans be treated. Because growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was not a great time for veterans in this country. Um, Post-Vietnam was difficult. I, I talked to General Bill Rains a few years ago. He's behind the Range group here in town and a big part of the Medal of Honor Heritage Center. And he was telling me about his service. And he was an officer in Vietnam and said when he came home, they threw rotten eggs at him. And he was told, don't wear your uniform, like by his unit, by his superiors. Don't wear a uniform in public. And he didn't from the 60s when he came home to Desert Storm, he didn't do it. And and that was the first time they ever had a situation where someone treated him like they appreciated his service. And all that time, he went to, he got deployed, got the information, took some stuff to the dry cleaners, went to pick it up, and on the the bag, there's a little slip and said, it said, no charge, thank you. That was the first time in 20 some odd years he had heard that. And so what we do on The Price of Freedom is we want to create a, a place where, where it, it's always okay to talk about your service because your service matters. And that's something that we, that we strive to do is create that. And that can be on camera, off camera. Anybody you know who's served who wants to just sit on and talk about it, I'll just, I mean, we can go to Hardee's and get a biscuit. You know, we can sit on a park bench. I don't care. Or we can do it in your living room. We can put it on TV. We can do whatever you want to do it. It's not always about telling the story for television it's about understanding who our veterans are and and what they're all about it's such a small percentage of our society who actually serves and and what makes them do that what makes them want to take their because at this point since you know since Vietnam it's all been all volunteer so everybody who goes makes that decision to go and so that's part of what we're trying to do with, with, this, with this series. And I was uh, working in Knoxville in a TV station there in 2006. So let me back up a little bit, right? So I get out of the Marine Corps, dropped to the inactive reserve in 97, and then got out completely in 99. And then two years after that was 9-11, right? So I've been really out of the military for four years at that point. And... I had four four years into this career, and it was really hard because I knew I was young enough and healthy enough to go and help, and it was a hard decision to not do that, but I was being pulled in my mind to do what I'm doing today, and I'm one that believes, and I think a lot of people believe, you know, the things, the decisions you make and the places you end up are are for a reason, and I believe that all that stuff led to this, to where I am today, because I feel like that What I've done here in Chattanooga the last 10 years with The Price of Freedom um, is an extension of my service. I'm not serving. People have accused me over the years of being pro-war, and that's not it. People have accused me to be a a pro-military. That's not really it. I'm pro-veteran. I want to understand the veterans. I understand the people who are serving currently and who have served and what that's about and, and why you do that. And so... Through all that, it's been an amazing um, experience here the last decade of, of getting a chance to tell some of these folks' stories, and more than anything, it's I feel selfish in some ways because it's been educational for me, and it's and it's and it's it, 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 it it's it's hard to put into words just how special it's been. To do this and and meet these people and and sit across on them and and hear their stories, and many of them are not here anymore. Talk about Ralph Painter and George Palmer, um, people that I had a chance to to sit down with for a few hours or maybe an hour, and and then just tell me what that was like, what their life was like, um, what they saw, what they experienced, and that was important, you know, to 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 tell those stories and do that. And so now, where we are, um, I get a chance, and this has grown through the years, to do this, um, come out and talk to groups and talk to people about military service and, and the price of freedom and what we're doing um, a few times a year. Veterans Day is obviously one that, that, that sticks out, um, Memorial Day, and then other times of the year as well. And so I cherish these times too because when you're in a TV studio telling it, there's only like three people in there and they've heard all my stories and, and they know all the stuff. And so being here with you is really special because I, I feel like that I get a chance to to really kind of explain kind of more than just that two-minute segment you saw on the news because there's so much more to these stories than just that. We pick out the highlights and the things that we think people need to understand, but there's so much more to, to this. And so every time I do one of these these talks, I tried to not repeat myself, but in, in this year, I think I might because the, every year I try to find the story that's been the most impactful to me or the one I think might impact somebody and somebody's life. And, and the one this year is, is Larry Taylor, Captain Larry Taylor. And if you don't know his story, he received the Medal of Honor uh, on September 5th in Washington, DC, and he lives on Signal Mountain Grew up here, has been uh Chattanooga most of his life except for his military service. Grew up St. Elmo and um went to Macaulay, went to UT in Knoxville, R O T C and after his, his his uh college career, he you know, when you go through that you you promise you're gonna spend so much time in the in the army and the uh the war was on then, Vietnam was on then. And so he gets sent over there and through the years, I've had a chance to talk to him a lot. And, and as a journalist, that's a, that's a special thing, to, to not just ask the question once or twice and then move on. Go back more times and ask the same question maybe and maybe hear the answer in a different way. And, and, and it's been interesting because I've learned so much from, from, from these conversations. And not just him, but there are people who I've met who were there with him and there are people who I've met who worked on this project to help get him the Medal of Honor, and that was a project. And there's so many layers to it, and there's so many things to take away from it. I want to share some of that with you today. Um, he, like I said, he, he, uh, he left UT and, uh, and went um, full-time in the Army, and in August of 67 is when he was sent to Vietnam. So he did one-year tour August 67, August 68, right? And he gets there and he's flying. He was originally in the armored branch and decided he didn't want to do that. They moved him into flight school. And he started flying these B model Hueys, which were older model helicopters. And they were gunships is what they called them. And he said, these things just didn't have any power at all. And so they were under... uh did not have the equipment they needed and so but the first several months he was there that's what he flew on these missions and so around march of 68 most people spend that entire year if you're there in combat a month of that he got sent to benoit to go to flight school to fly these cobras and he talked about these cobras like that and when he flew that thing he was like this is living right this is like i mean you couldn't even describe it i mean we're in a church, but I'll go ahead and say what he said. Um, he, said he, he said, it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on. <laughs> That's what he said. Um, and uh, he, Larry Taylor is hilarious. He's the toughest person I've probably ever met and one of the funniest as well. And, and I'll try to share some of that during, during this talk as well. But, it, but, but so for 11 months in that year, he was, he was, he was flying missions. And, and to put that into perspective... Marines in the South Pacific in World War II, right? To to fight those battles, you're on some kind of boat and you're landing on an island and you land and the fighting is really intense for a few days or a short period of time. And then when the battle's over, there's kind of a down period, right? And so on average, Marines in the South Pacific in in World War II, they fought for about 40 days a year. If you were on the ground in Vietnam, you fought about 240 days a year. If you were a helicopter pilot, you flew 320 days a year on average. So these guys were every day in it, right? And their job, his job, what he did specifically was when somebody's on the ground in trouble, he gets the call and he goes in and he is air to ground fire support, right? So if, if some troops are on, they're pinned down in there, he shows up. And these things got a bunch of rockets and, and they called mini guns and he's going in there and it's, it's war. It's full on chaos, right? And, and, and that's what's happening. And so in that time, in that 11 month time, he earned 63 combat decorations, 63, 43 air medals. We know the Medal of Honor now, um, one bronze star, four Distinguished Flying Crosses. 63 in 11 months is about 1.31 per week. So this man was in the thick of stuff a lot. And as he would say, and I'll clean this up, is, is uh, he, uh, he hung his butt out every night is what he said. And uh, so, I mean, he was, he was really in the thick of it. And what happens is where your base camp is, there's a horn that would go off and that is your, is your alert. You got two minutes to get to your helicopter and get that off the ground. And he said he flew many missions in his skivvies and flip flops because that thing went off and he was asleep or in the bathroom or something else because uh, it was going off all the time. And so, but you have two minutes to do that. And when you're going into these missions, you don't have a lot of time to think about what you're about to do. And it's always dangerous. And he so said, there's a process of both focusing your mind on what you're about to do to just your job, what do you gotta to do to do this? And then also kind of psyching yourself up that this is gonna be hairy, right? And so that's what his life was like day in, day out during the war. And so on this night, the, the combat action that would eventually earn him the Medal of Honor 55 years later. It was June 18th, 1968, and they get the Horn going off, and it's, he had been flying, he was the first squadron to go through that Cobra flight school. So he was the first group of guys to fly these Cobras in Vietnam. And so Horn goes off, he and his co-pilot get in there helicopter, the Cobra, they call it a gunship. They start heading toward this battle. Typically you've got one Cobra and a second Cobra that's your wingman and then you have a Huey that comes with you as a transport, um, troop transport option. Well about as soon as they leave the base they realize that the comms, communications, the radios are out on the Huey. So Huey's got to go back. So he doesn't have any kind of way to transport troops now. So now they're just in fighting mode. And there were four guys on the ground. Four, they called them LERPs at the time, they call uh, long range reconnaissance. Um, Now you'd call them an army ranger. But there were four guys and their job on this night was supposed to be a three day mission. And they move slow and try to be quiet and they were trying to observe a village A place called Ap Gokong in Vietnam was about less less than 20 miles from Saigon at the time. It's now Ho Chi Minh City, but Saigon at the time. And so they're flying to, to this, this battle. These guys went in to observe. It's, it's dusk. And so it's not dark, dark yet, but it's starting to get dark. And they realize they're seeing silhouettes on both sides of them of people and realize, okay, we're, we're been spotted and we're surrounded. And this is, this, is, this is a problem. And so they called in for the air support saying, we've got a problem. And as soon as they start doing that, the battle started. And so these guys are getting lit up from a lot of different directions, and they're surrounded. And it's so close to this village, and this village has a company of enemy combatants, so to speak. And so they have an endless supply of people to join the fight against these four guys. And they are pinned down and they are trapped. And so Taylor, who is the the, the, the ranking officer in this mission, and the, and the wingman show up and they just go to work, right? And it's rockets and it's mini gun rounds and they're flying over one pass, two passes. You know, they make a loop essentially, different directions, come out from other directions and they're, they're going at them. And it goes on for about 35 minutes. And they realize at this point that they don't have enough firepower to get these guys out. Um, And the protocol is, when you start to run out of ammunition and fuel, you leave that fight, you go back to your base camp, and you refuel, and you reload, and you go back. And he knew, after seeing from the air what was going on there, that if he did that, these men were going to be captured or killed. And he was not willing to do that. So he comes up with a plan. He says, what we're going to do, we got about enough ammunition for one more real good blast. And we're going to try to, as it's in a ring, take out one part of that ring, or at least scare folks away from that part, give them enough room to run. There's a river they're running toward and give him enough space to kind of get out of the thick of that. At the same time, they're calling artillery, and some of the artillery catches part of the village on fire. So that distracts them a little bit. Now they're fighting the fire in the village and fighting these guys on the ground. That's enough of a deterrent to kind of give him a little bit of space. And then he tells these guys on the ground who he's worked with in the past, right? He gets called every night. So he works with a lot of the same guys who were and dangerous stuff. They're in trouble a lot. So he worked with these guys. Their call sign was Wildcat 2. And he calls down to Wildcat 2 and says, what I want you to do is blast your claymores, which is a little explosive device they all had, blast those things, create a diversion, run 100 yards toward that direction where they're going to blast that hole in that, that ring and lay down in the grass. And they don't know what they're doing that for. They just know they've been told to do it, so they're going to do it because they're in trouble and not a lot of options at this point. So they do that, and as soon as they lay down, they feel the backdraft draft of Larry Taylor's Cobra landing. He almost lands on top of them. And he never told them what to do, but they just instinctively knew what to do. And two grab onto the struts and the skids on one side, and two jump on the empty rocket pods. Uh, There's a guy, Dave Hill, who's the one survivor today from that group says he rode it backwards like a horse, <laughs> got thing backwards, and he lifted these four men out of this battle. Flew them away to a uh, water treatment plant close to Saigon. They get off of the helicopter, step out, salute him. They go on with the war. He does the same thing. He was awarded a silver star for that and A few days after that, it was such a big moment for those guys on the ground that they wanted to go find Larry Taylor. Didn't had never met him face to face. He had come to their aid many times, but didn't know him. They wanted to go find him and thank him because they saved. He saved their lives. Both teams of Cobras saved their lives that night. But what Larry Taylor did specifically had never been done before in combat, and it. Was done other times, a version of that in combat with those Cobras, but not like that. Not in that situation, in that much danger. Uh, he had 13 bullet holes in the side of his Cobra that night when he got back to the, to the base camp. Um, saved four men's lives. I mean, that was the, it was the most extreme version of that, but versions of that happened later in the war. But that was the first time that had ever happened. So they wanted to go find him and thank him. Couldn't find him and he's on another mission. They had to go back and do what they had to do. They were both toward the end of their, of their tours. Um, and so Larry Taylor finished his tour, goes to Germany for a while, comes back to Chattanooga, and he's lived here since the 70s. The other men do the same thing. Uh, one of the four men died in combat, um, but the uh, three of the men come back home, start their lives.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. And so in 1999,
1: Dave Hill, who's the one survivor of that group on the ground, he got a phone call, and, and it was from somebody he knew, Army Ranger he knew, and he said, they said, we're going to have a reunion in Branson, Missouri. First time they ever had a reunion. It had been home for, you know, since late 60s, so 20 some odd years at that point, I guess. Yeah, no, 30 years at that point. Um, and so... And so they, on the phone, they said, and Larry Taylor's going to be there. And he was like, well, I can't miss this opportunity to go and talk to Larry Taylor. Something I've been wanting to do for a long time. So they go, two of the guys who were there on the ground that night were there, and Larry Taylor was there, and they start talking. And Dave says that's the first time he realized that Larry Taylor didn't get the Medal of Honor. He assumed he always had, I think 1999, internet's not like it is today where we just have it in our hands all the time, right? He, he didn't know, he never realized it. And he realized as well, he had a silver star, but that's what they got for the same thing. It's like, how can I get the same medal that this guy got and he saved our lives? We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this. He, he will tell you that they were either gonna be captured or killed. And Larry Taylor will tell you that he never left a man on the ground and he never had any of his pilots Killed in action. And you would be very proud of that. That's a big deal. Because that's 68, right? This is the deadliest year of the war. Tet offensive was January, three phases from January to September. So it was it was it was bad at that point. It was bad the whole time, but it was bad in that year more, more so than other times. And so they started just talking at that reunion, and um and they're telling the story. And this that's when they talked to, to this to this man here, Gary Gary Linderer wrote a book about missions, uh, phantom warriors, uh, about the Rangers and the Lurps and all this stuff. And it was told, and story is told in this book, and this was, uh, the interviews for this book were done at that reunion in 1999. And so they just talked through the years. Of, like Every time they would, they would meet up, boy, Larry should have got the Medal of Honor. Well, he should have got the Medal of Honor. And then they'd go on with their lives. And then, and, and then a couple of years later, they started, like, we need to do something about this. But they didn't know how. And so There's only two of them, of those rangers, that were going to these reunions. One had died in the war. Um, One, they didn't know where he was. And so they start trying to figure this out. What's the process like? And they just start talking about it and trying to dig around, and they can't really figure it out and and whatever. And so in 2017, Dave Hill gets serious about it. And he says, he wrote a letter to Bob Corker, thinking he didn't know where this was going to go, but he's going to write a letter. In Bob Corker's office... Um, Chief of Staff, Todd Womack, um, they, they assign a staffer to this case. Stacey Willoughby is her name. And, and Dave Hill credits her for the first couple of years of this of really, there's no like, place to go, to go where do you get your silver star to do the Medal of Honor? It's not like just something you go and figure out basically how they figured it out was just calling the Army and trying to find the right person to talk to, and they would help them a little bit, and they submitted a packet, and it got denied. They submitted a packet, and it got denied, and that was the first year of it. And so in 2018, I'm at a a Vietnam Veterans of America meeting over in East Ridge. That's the first time I met Larry Taylor in 2018, and he and some friends were there, and they're looking for that, that one ranger they knew who was alive, um, but they didn't know where he was. His name's Gerald Patty. And so in that meeting, they're telling a little bit about the story and saying, we're trying to find this guy, Gerald Patty, because part of that process, they've learned at that point, there were two things they had to have they didn't have. And, and the first one was two living eyewitnesses of what happened. They had one, they had Dave Hill, Bob Elsner, the other rager who was at the reunions, had since passed. So by 2018, it's just Dave Hill. He's the only one that is still living, that they know of. And they don't know where Gerald Paddy is, and he's from Maryville, Tennessee up in Blount County. And so they think maybe somebody knows this man. And so they needed that. And they also needed to account for all the people who were there that night. And so the only American troops that were there that night were the four men on the ground, Taylor, his co-pilot, and the two, and the two pilots in the other helicopter. Well, the two pilots in the other helicopter, they died in the war, and so Gerald Patty, Dave Hill, and Larry Taylor's co-pilot were only are the only options for the two men. So they went on this nationwide search for Gerald Patty and it took them almost a year, and they figured out. Calling numbers. They've had some, some uh, people named Joe Pattigan like New Jersey and, and other places and they're trying to track him down. And finally they figure out through finding his family that he had passed away in 2015. And so now they're down to two options. And so they, they believed that, the, that his co-pilot was still around somewhere, but they couldn't find him. And they found out through searching that he lived in Costa Rica. He was a commercial pilot when he came back from the war and he just living in Costa Rica, and it's hard to find him. And, and so they, they knew that he was there, so they tried to contact him. They couldn't get him. They couldn't get him. This went on for months. They couldn't get him, couldn't get him. And so finally, they find his son um, in Virginia and say, well, I, I can get in touch with him. So they get him, and they finally get in touch with him. He goes, sure, I'll do a witness statement. And so he comes back to the States a couple months later, fills his witness statement out, and uh, so, okay, great. So now it's like 2019 or so, uh, and, and they think they've got all that they need, right? They put these packets together, and this was the packet they put together in 2019. I met Larry Taylor at that meeting in 2018, and when I, and when I heard the story, I uh, I went up to him and told him who I was, and I want to tell your story. story. That's, that's fascinating, and he was all in. But the guys who were working on this with them, they were like, well, media coverage might hurt us. So can you do the interview and just hold on to it for a while? And I thought, this is a phenomenal story, sure, I'll do that. What I didn't know is how long they were going to ask me to do that, because <laughs> um, it was 2018. We didn't air it until 2021. We don't hold stories for three years, that's not what we do. I didn't tell anybody, I just kind of squirreled it away, <laughs> nobody hurt my video, I need this. and. They were in a hurry to do the interview because Larry had been fighting prostate cancer for four years. And by the time I asked him to do the interview, and we did the interview, uh, October 23rd, 2018, he had just been diagnosed with kidney cancer. And so he, he was going through some stuff, but they wanted, while he was as healthy as he was, to get this recorded. So I went to his house, one o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, October 23rd, 2018, and we did a, a, an interview for 47 minutes and 40 seconds. And I'll never forget it, because I've watched it a lot. I've watched it a lot. Uh, well, way too much, probably. If I told you the number, it, it would just feel weird. Um, so uh, I've watched it a lot. And, and it's, it's one of the most phenomenal things experiences of my life. You're sitting across from this guy, at that point, wasn't a Medal of Honor recipient but he had a phenomenal story. And I'm hearing it from the person who lived it, who did it. And it's, I mean, it is incredible just to hear him explain it in detail and what he was thinking and why he did what he did and, and all those things. And so it was just one of those things that, that I, I just couldn't forget. And so we do the interview and I'd see him, you know, at events through the years and just say, hey, can we have the story? And he's just, they were like, well, just wait, we're gonna let you know and all this stuff and okay. Well, so finally, right? So pandemic hits, everything stops, slows everything down. Finally, get things going again, and that's when they really started to get traction. It was twenty twenty one. It was like this this whole stop and stop and start, hitting roadblocks. They went to the Medal of Honor Heritage Center here in Chattanooga, and they had been talking with them for a while, but general rains and some of the guys with that were busy raising money for that. And so they put this in front of General B.B. Bell. Now, General Bell lives here. He's a a retired four-star general. And if you know anything about four-star generals, right, there's there's only been, I think, nine people who ever had a five-star rank uh, in the American military. And most of that was World War II when we had our generals having to meet with you know, other allied forces generals, and they had five-star ranks, and so our guys couldn't be outranked by their guys, so we gave some people five-star ranks. and But Omar Bradley was the last living general who had the five-star rank, passed away in the 80s. Nobody's had it since then. So to be a four-star general is a big deal. And so he got involved, and he looks at the packet that I just showed you. This here, and this has got like letters from Bob Corker and witness statements and parts of that book in it, and it's a pretty good deal here. And so they started with this, and when B.B. Bell got involved, they ended up with this. This is much more substantial and a lot more direct, and so you can tell the difference here. This is the one that got that, that finally got the thing done. Um, what they realized, though, since B.B. Bell was a four-star general, he'd been involved in, in awards a lot, from being from what he had done, he knew the process as well as anybody, and he said, "The reason you're not getting any real traction is there's nothing in this packet that you've laid out that Taylor's command didn't have in '68 when they gave you the Silver Star. You got to prove that there's information they didn't have." And so they start talking and going through the whole thing and realized because of the war and where Dave Hill and his guys were and Larry Taylor's guys were, they never talked to anybody on the ground. So that was the thing. When they finally understood that they never talked to anybody on the ground, he had information that, that this command didn't have, that's what moved the ball rolling. And also having a four-star general who people are gonna call back when he calls and answer his emails and having someone that really can make some things happen. That's really when, when things started going. And so that was 2021. And then finally, uh, April of this year, I get, a, I get a phone call. It was a Sunday. I was out for a run. I came back home and I saw I had a missed call from one of the, those veterans who were working on it. And he said, Larry got a letter from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin saying it had passed through the Pentagon. He had signed it. It's on the president's desk. And essentially this is going to happen. And so it was one of those things that's hard to believe when you heard it because they've been working on it for so long. And I talked to these guys so many times. And now as a journalist, I just get busy behind the scenes trying to put this stuff together. So we're ready to go when, when it actually, we can announce something. And so the president calls him on a Saturday in July and we had some stuff ready to go. So we entered that on Saturday and Sunday. And I went and talked to him on, on that Monday. And when you're asking these questions to someone you've talked to a lot and you know the story in and out and you feel like you're asking the same questions over and over again and you're, you're listening for anything that you don't know already. And some of those conversations were when I heard things that were like, man, now I understand this person a little bit, a little bit better than I ever did. And he would talk about, you know, going on these missions and knowing how dangerous they were, and psyching himself up, and going through that process. And during the mission, he's fine. And then he goes back to the base camp afterwards, and thinks about what he did, and throws up in the trash can, because he realizes how close he was to hurting himself, potentially getting shot down, all these things. And he told me, this is important, he told me, he says, even all these years later, I wake up in a cold sweat. All these years later, I wake up in a cold sweat. And that's something I've heard many, many times talking to veterans through the years, right? And so, you know, you realize this person who's been through all he's been through and done what he's done to this level, he's no different than a lot of these other veterans in some ways, but there's more to that story and I'll get to that in a second. And, and so it's impactful. And so I'm, I'm, I got sent back over there to talk to him the week before the ceremony. And same thing, I'm I'm asking questions, trying to figure out what I haven't heard, what I need to know, and he mentions getting shot down. I said, well, tell me that story. And he said, well, I got shot down five times. Well, what happens when you get shot down? Well, when you shoot the helicopter, most of the time it's gonna spin. And so, when you're spinning, and you know you haven't hit the ground yet, but you know you're probably pretty close to hitting the ground. If you got any rockets, or, or minigun ammunition, you let it all go as much as you can at the end. Therefore, before you hit the ground, you're spinning and you're shooting rockets in every direction around you. If anybody's waiting for you in the bushes, you have some room. And he said one time he got shot down, he was with this guy he'd never flown with before, brand new co-pilot, and they hit the ground and it all settles. And the guy says, what do we do now? And he goes, we run. And <laughs> So they get out of the helicopter and they run to the tree line and they hide. And he, he said, every time he got shot down, those rangers that he was going and helping every night would come and find him in the, in the brush and get him back to his base camp. And that, that is the, that's the part of the story that's like, I see this now, right? You did that stuff, it was your job. You, he would, you would ask him, why'd you do why'd you do that mission? Why'd you do that on June 18, 68? Because it needed doing, is what he would say. And that's obviously a big part of it. But they relied on each other, right? I'm gonna come save you. And if I get shot down, you can come save me. And there's a there's a, there's a, a piece of being vulnerable with that, right? I need you, you need me. We're, we're in this together. And when we think about I remember playing high school football, right? And, and, and I played a lot of positions, but I remember being, being the fullback, right? And so we had a play called 16 lead, right? Which was the, all, everything, all, all of that means something. The one means the, the tailback's getting the ball. The six means you're going to the sixth gap, which is right outside the tackle, between the tackle and the tight end, because the, the, the gaps on the right are even and the gaps on the left are odd. And so on this play, the line pushes everybody this way. And the tight end that's on the defensive end lets him go free and go, goes to block the, the linebacker. So what you should have is everybody cleared out and one man just standing there by himself. And it's my job to hit him and knock him that way so the running back can get through, right? If I fall down, <laughs> if I miss that man, um, that running back's going to get hit in the mouth. And that's not good. He's counting on me to do that. Combat is, you know, I don't know, 100 times X that, right? But still, those guys I played football with, if I saw them tomorrow, 30 years ago we played together, it would be like yesterday. And that's, that's happened, you know, because you have that bond. And needing each other, man, that, that, that's, that's that bond that's really hard when you break these guys apart and you send them out after their, their their combat tour, send them home they struggle with. That person they're used to needing and they need you as well that's missing. And, and that's one of the hard things with all the mental health, suicide crisis, all this stuff. I talked to a man named Ernie Savage, who, who was in the Battle of Yadrang, which is the first full scale um, US Army battle in Vietnam. And um, and I asked him about that, you know, mental health stuff. And he said, well, I went. I was a career army person, so I went back to Fort Benning and that's just where I stayed. He says, so I had some things, but nothing that was that bad because I never left. I was around my guys all the time. And that's, that's one of the things, right? If you can be around your, your people, how that helps. And that's what I saw with this group with Larry Taylor, right? They, they, from this mission of trying to, to get this Medal of Honor, uh, Dave Hill said it was the one thing in his career that he that, that never was finished. It was incomplete. One thing that he had to do. And these guys, they it was like full time jobs. It was late. It was Dave Hill, a couple guys in town, Carl Poston, Mike Holden who passed away in October, uh, General Range, General Bell. Some of these guys so they really worked. I mean, to get all this to happen because they knew that it could happen. They started to see guys, you know, receive the Medal of Honor you know, from Vietnam years and years later. And so they, they really, you know, knew that this was a possibility. And so that's that's really made what made them, them work so hard at, at all this. And another piece of that of that idea, I'm looking for where I was in my in my talk here. Okay. I don't know where it was. Um, that mental health piece, right, is 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 important to think about in the context of of the way we treat veterans today, Like We talked about, you know, post-Vietnam, and I know people who were, my grandmother for one, who was alive and, and I was an adult in that era. It's hard for her to think about because she saw all those things. And when I joined the Marine Corps, <laughs> when I joined the Marine Corps, I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> I didn't, I knew if I told anyone, they'd try to talk me out of it. And I didn't want to be talked out of it. I knew what I wanted to do. And so, it was. It's, it's hard to 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 think about some of those things because it is been has been challenging. But the way veterans are treated in this country, uh, even today, even though there is more respect than there was in that era, it's not like it was post World War II. Say, you know, from '53 to '92, every president had military background, prior military were veterans. Since then, only one has has had military service. Uh, same thing for Congress. Those numbers have, have dropped a lot. Like we, we did the military get worse at training leaders? No, they didn't. We, our society has changed how they look at it, right? And and so I think that is a, a big a big thing. And I sit at an interesting, you know, um, point in our society as a journalist and a veteran, because I think when people approach people, right, they, they think of them in categories. They make up their mind who you are based on, you know, these things in your life. And, and it's important for us to, to, to push back on these ideas, right? Because the reason we tell these stories at Channel 9 is because you never know how this story is different than the next story. And they're all different. And you don't know how the story is going to end. And you really don't. And that brings you back to the Larry Taylor story where he said, I wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. And I think in my head, I've heard this story a lot of times. I know what he's saying. And then a beat later he says, and then I tell myself, you don't know how lucky you are. And that's a different ending to that story. Doesn't mean he doesn't struggle. I mean, he does. He clearly does. There are so many versions of that, of, you know, my wife sleeps in the other room, or I don't go to sleep at night because I'm afraid of what's going to be there when I go to sleep. Well, Larry Taylor thinks of it as, you, I don't know how lucky, you don't know how lucky you are because he survived all that stuff. And he made it home, and, and, and he's had a remarkable life. And... um and he's struggling today with some, some health issues, but, but he's as, as funny and as strong as, as anybody you want to meet. And, and if you get a chance to, to shake his hand, I encourage you to do it because he's, he's an awesome human being. So thanks for letting me be here today. I appreciate it. I appreciate all you uh, for, for listening to, to, to me ramble on today. And uh, if you have any questions, we can talk afterwards. Um, but I just, uh, just appreciate you. And, and if you've got a veteran in your life on Saturday, or before Saturday, get, hug their neck. Appreciate them um, because it's, even if, you, if, you're, if you're not fighting a war, you know, your sacrifice matters. You, you could be at home, not getting hit in the face with that gas mask, right? You could choose not to do that. Um, and, and, you know, uh, it's, it, it changes people's lives on so many levels of just getting out of your hometown and seeing somebody, something that's different, experiencing other cultures. I remember when I was in the reserves, I did an anti-drug operation in the Caribbean and my job wasn't hard. I guarded the helicopter at night and they had these Caribbean forces. We were an anti-drug operation. So the Caribbean government wanted us to go in and help them get rid of their marijuana fields because there were people who would go up to the tourists on the beaches and try to sell them marijuana so they wanted us to come in there and try to help them eradicate it. And so I would watch the helicopter and then one week they came to us and said, we're going to give, this, give you some help and it's going to be a soldier from the Caribbean forces. And this, I'll, I'll, end, I'll end on this. And uh, this guy comes up and, and I'm a Marine, right? My uniform looks good. I've got my creases and my boots are shined and I'm ready to go. And, but we're, what, we're guarding it all night long. And this guy comes up and his shirt doesn't match his pants and he looks kind of disheveled and so i take the first shift and i go to where he's he's sitting thinking he's gonna be asleep and he's sitting up in a chair back as straight as a board waiting for his turn to to guard the helicopter and it's like three in the morning so i come in you know and i got my head down i just exhausted and and he said why are you hanging your head and i said i'm just tired i'm good don't worry about it and he goes Fatigue will go away, but you have to carry yourself with respect because nobody else is going to if you don't. And it was one of those things of like, I judged this person based on his uniform and he's teaching me a lesson, you know, about how you carry yourself and thinking, I already knew that. I already knew how to carry myself. I'm a Marine. I know how to carry myself, right? But it's like, "Mm, well, maybe you should be open-minded about that and think about, you know, what you can learn from those folks around you because... It really is important. So, so those veterans in your life, uh, they, they're special people. And, uh, and we need to understand that uh, better in our society. Have a great day. Have a great Veterans Day as well. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Yes, sir. You have been listening to Tomorrowtown, Tennessee. This podcast is a production of News Channel 9, Fox Chattanooga, and Sinclair Broadcast Group Chattanooga. We hope you join us again real soon.